You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 16th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller, coming up on today's programme. There are teams on the ground uh, involving not just the Poles, but also the Ukrainians, Americans and others. I think all of us want to get to the bottom of what happened, and it's right that we let that process conclude. NATO ambassadors meet in Brussels after a missile lands in Poland. Investigations continue into whose missile it was. Also ahead... In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Former President Donald Trump announces his ambitions of finally winning the popular vote at the third attempt. Later in the show, we'll round up the business headlines and we'll have a leaf through the 2023 edition of The Forecast, Monocle's look at the year ahead. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. NATO ambassadors are gathering in Brussels to consider responses to yesterday's incident in which missiles struck a Polish village, killing two people. It remains unclear exactly what happened, but Polish President Andrzej Duda and US President Joe Biden have been notably cautious about assigning blame directly to Russia, suggesting a consensus that the damage was done either by a Russian missile deflected by Ukrainian air defence or a Ukrainian air defence missile, although Ukraine might reasonably point out that none of it would have occurred had Russia not been bombing Ukraine in the first place. Well, I'm joined with more by Alona Hlivko, a former Ukrainian local MP, now a senior consultant at Atticus Partners, and by retired British General Sir Richard Shiroff, NATO's former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Um, Sir Richard, first of all, what does it tell us that everyone is backing away from blaming Russia directly? I know we don't know exactly what happened yet, but does that suggest anything to you? Well, I think it says that, quite rightly, uh, it's about determining what happened and and understanding the facts before jumping into any conclusions and then looking at this deliberately, carefully, before coming to a decision. Um, Alona, on the subject of jumping to conclusions, perhaps, Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba uh, called any suggestions that it was Ukraine's responsibility, Russian propaganda. Um, If we do discover that this was a Ukrainian missile, and given that Ukrainian that Ukraine rather very much holds the moral high ground in this conflict, wouldn't it be better for Ukraine just to come clean and say, yes, that was an accident and yes, that was us? I was following the news last night very carefully ever since the first announcement Mm. of this has been made in the media. And it was interesting to see the Russian reaction and everything that's been coming from their telegram channels, from their propaganda machine. And they already started saying that it's a NATO provocation, that that's how they want to get into war with us, Russians, um, that it could be even British army involved and all the rest. So I think it was important to highlight the fact that the world needs to stave off from making any rushed conclusions And of course, with over 100 missiles flying into Ukraine yesterday, Mm. that was the biggest attack on Ukraine yet. I think that kind of lacks the recognition here in the West. It was worse than the 10th of October. It was worse than 24th of February. Um, 10 million of Ukrainians are still without electricity. 
uh, heating and basically means for living. So I think with all of that in the background, it was important to uh, look at what's happening even in bordering Poland and to make sure that the world is not falling for those immediate messages from Russia. Um, Richard, this is something we have talked about as a theoretical possibility before, the idea of an accidental escalation, uh, if that's what this is. Um, What kind of safeguards are available against something like this? Would there have been conversations near the start of this conflict between um, any official or unofficial NATO channels and Russia saying, you know, these are the things that you have to be careful of. These are the red lines that must not be crossed. Well, there are, I'm sure there are constant messaging. There is constant messaging going on between NATO, between America and Russia to make it absolutely clear that any escalation uh, will be will be will be will be dealt with pretty severely, I think. On this case, um, and I'm absolutely with Alona here. We should remember this was a brutal onslaught by mm. Russian missiles yet again on Ukraine. Uh, I think we should also add, good for Ukraine that the that the number shot down was much higher proportionately than on previous, which shows that the uh, arguably that the air defence systems are are getting through and are having an effect. I think the message it sends, though, is. The West has got to double down not only on providing the means, the military means to allow Ukraine to defend itself and to retake its territory, but the West, NATO, needs to look to its own uh, capabilities and be prepared for the worst case, as indeed I've been saying since the 24th of February. Uh, Aluna, is there potentially in in coming days, as we learn more about this incident, a, a chance here for Ukraine to reiterate and amplify what has been a constant message of Ukraine's government throughout this entire conflict, that Ukraine is fighting a war here on Europe's behalf and that there are dangers here not just for Ukraine but for the rest of the continent? I'm sure. Um, And first of all, we must understand that if you have a country on the border with European Union and NATO who's fighting a war, who's deflecting this authoritarian state, there will inevitably be a collateral damage. And we are starting to see that now. It was only a matter of time Mm. until some missile reached either Poland or one of the Baltic states or Romania, for that matter. Um, Whether that's going to accelerate NATO's understanding of challenges that Ukraine is facing. Um, that's a whole nother matter about, you know, accession to NATO that's been discussed since 2008. Um, I think it is important now to amplify the air defense for Ukraine. Um, it is important to get down to what's actually happened. I think we do need to wait for investigation because on one hand, parts of the missiles that were uh, struck down in in Poland, they do seem to be Ukrainian. But on the other hand, when you look at coordinates um, of the Polish village, it has the latitude of Kiev and the longitude of Lviv. Mm. So it could also have been a rookie mistake of unexperienced Russian soldier. So we don't know what's happened and we need to wait for um, final confirmation. I do understand that NATO countries do not want any escalation. So Whatever comes out of this report, I don't think that they will aim to 
to lead to any escalation with Russia. Uh, Richard, accidents like this happen in war. They happen in every conflict and they even happen in, well, they involve countries which are not necessarily involved in the conflict taking place. I mean, one recalls in reasonably recent years, Turkey shooting down a Russian aircraft over Syria, uh, the United States managing to bomb the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. At a moment like that, what kind of communications are had within an organisation like NATO? How how difficult or easy is it to stop uh, civilian governments from panicking and overreacting? Well, uh, th- 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 this is where the North Atlantic Council will be will mm. be uh, sitting now today in Brussels and thinking it through very carefully. Uh, NATO is a consensus organisation, mm. so we can take comfort from the fact that uh, NATO will take there will be no unilateral action from from NATO countries. It'll be done as part of an alliance an alliance response and it will be very carefully considered i would also add that i would be surprised if the north atlantic council had not already in a sense wargamed such an eventuality mm. so that it had developed a, a sort of intellectual muscle memory to allow it to uh, address the challenges that we're, we're now seeing but at the end of the day of course the message must continue to go through collateral damage would not happen if Russia had not launched a brutal assault on Ukraine. And and that message must get through loud and clear. And it's pretty timely, of course, that this happens during the, the so-called um, G19, as, as, as President Zelensky calls it so rightly, with Lavrov, I hope, feeling pretty humiliated in Bali at the moment. Um, Richard, were there moments like this or any one moment like this you can recall during your time as Deputy Supreme Allied Commander where there was a, 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 a mishap and overreach, a misfire, and everybody had to be careful uh, not to let it turn into something it might not have been? I think on a couple of occasions, you, you've mentioned one, which was, to be fair, it was, it was the NATO bombing of Belgrade, which led mm. to the bombing of the Chinese embassy, which was a serious mishap. Of course it was. Um, collateral damage, not intended. And that, in a sense, continues to play out in Russian propaganda. Um, and the other incident, of course, was when, in, in, in the Kosovo campaign, when you may remember, the Russians launched a preemptive move mm. to secure Pristina airfield. Uh, General Wes Clark, the sacker at the time, ordered uh, General Mike Jackson, the commander of the the, um, uh, the K- K-4, to, to take action. And, and Mike Jackson said resolutely, I am not going to start World War Three on this basis and defuse the situation pretty quickly. Uh, and I think it's about defusing the situation, but at the same time, defusing it from a position of real strength. And, and I, 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 I don't think I can stress this strongly enough. This is where the European members of NATO have now got to wake up and smell the damn coffee because they haven't done so yet. Where are the preparations for the worst case in this country? Mm. We had the German so-called Zeitenwender announced by Scholz on the 27th of February. What have the Germans actually done? Uh, Europe continues to sleepwalk in a complacent way and is dependent on the Americans. And and that's got to stop. Um, Alona, we have heard today from... uh Mikhailo Podolyak, who's an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky, he is asking for Europe to close the skies over Ukraine. This is a, a sort of a reiteration of a call for a no-fly zone, uh, which has been made before by Ukraine. Um, is Ukraine still as determined on that as it always was? Because Ukraine must understand that that would dramatically heighten the risks of escalation. I think initially what we're after, and I do believe that that program is kind of in progress and we're slowly reaching uh, that collective goal that Ukraine has, is um, getting similar um, 
technologies that Israel has with Iron Dome, that mm-hmm. getting more air defense um, from the U.S. and the U.K. and the allies. Uh, I think our pilots are currently undergoing training um, on the NATO standard fighter jets. So that all will kind of collide into closing the sky. That certainly takes time and effort and a lot of investment. And I think what's reassuring is, again, this instance showing to the allies that Ukraine does need uh, more air defense systems. Uh, There is going to be more investment into that. I think President Biden has already committed $37 billion just right after the incident to Ukraine to provide more weapons because initially, whether it was... Russian missile or Ukrainian um, air defense missile, all Ukraine was trying to do is protect Mm. our sky and Polish sky initially and all the allies' skies. We are there as as a shield for Europe. Um, And that was certainly the number one intent. So if Europe wants to, to protect itself and perhaps, as Richard is saying, not sleepwalk into third world war, they do need to invest more into Ukraine's defense capabilities. And Richard, just finally on that, what would you say, if, if, if it does turn out that this is a Ukrainian S-300, does that end up making the case for supplying Ukraine with better air defense kit, which, aside from anything else, will make further mishaps of this sort less likely? Uh, absolutely. And to, and to your point about Ukraine, uh, Europe helping Europe closing the skies of of, of Ukraine to Russian aircraft, the best way to do that is for Europe, NATO, America to give Ukraine the very best state-of-the-art air defense equipment and to train uh, Ukrainian pilots to fly NATO standard aircraft in order to allow the Ukrainians to to close the sky, because they can do that. Um, But we've got to double down on the kit. General Sir Richard Sheriff and Alona Hlivko, thank you both for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Donald Trump has announced he will run for the U.S. presidency in 2024. Trump told supporters in Florida that America's comeback starts right now. However, many Republicans blame him for the party's poor performance in the midterms. The second batch of Kenyan troops is due to arrive in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The group is part of a regional force that has been deployed for a peacekeeping mission in the east of the country. And the UK has issued its first spaceport license, which will pave the way for the country's maiden satellite launch later this year. It means that the UK could become Europe's leading space industry player. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Carlotta. You're listening to The Briefing. He's back. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence and the spirit of the American people. Former U.S. President Donald Trump last night formally declaring his ambitions of becoming the first president since Grover Cleveland to serve two non-consecutive terms, or as Trump would doubtless see it, the first since Franklin Roosevelt to win three consecutive presidential elections. Trump's speech was more or less the usual shtick with the minor tweak, as we heard there, that as well as making America great again, he's now advertising glorious as well. Well, I'm joined with more by Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent Chris Chermak. Um, Chris, Trump did go on at some some length, more than an hour. Did he did he say anything especially surprising amid that? 
Uh, you know, Andrew, I have to say what, what was perhaps most interesting for me were some of the things that he did not say rather than what he did say. Uh, in terms of his general speech, as you say, there was there was nothing particularly surprising. He spoke uh, about how he would turn the country around, how it had been, you know, great and glorious for two years ago and had gone down the tubes in the two years that he has not been president. Um, but there was an attempt, at the very least, to be a little bit more forward-looking and, in that sense, to try and listen to some advisors about the sort of state of the Republican Party after the midterm election results last week. There was no mention of the of, of any alleged fraud in 2020, as you alluded to there with him thinking he's won three, two elections already other than a very vague reference to China meddling at some point in the 2020 uh, elections. He couldn't really resist that. But otherwise, he only said there would be electoral reform, a return to paper ballots, um, and same-day voting, because this was, as he put it, a personal issue to him. But he didn't go any further than that. There was no mention of Republican opponents. Uh, I thought that was interesting as well. He did not try to, you know, there were no, no nicknames, as he's done ahead of the midterms, no Ron DeSanctimonious or anything like that. Um, and one policy thing I would say is interesting, also from hearing the, the end of your discussion in the last segment with Leonard Livko, there was barely a mention of what he would do about Ukraine. Um, he just said that Ukraine, you know, the invasion would not have happened under him if he had still been president. But other than that, I do think it was significant that there was no uh, mention of removing aid from Ukraine, stopping stopping military support for Ukraine, uh, anything anything like that. And I do think that says a little something policy-wise about where the party is, that even he believes this is not an issue that he could particularly win on. Um, and the other thing I would just say, Andrew, in terms of what's not present, it was interesting looking at, for example, Fox News. I was I was watching them a little bit. There was barely a long discussion about Donald Trump once the speech was over. Even Fox News's Sean Hannity pulled away at one point about 36, 37 minutes in um, to have a little discussion because this had been going on a little bit too long. And once it was over, they turned to other things. So there is a, a different energy about this time, it has to be said, than there was certainly in uh, 2015. How much do you think last Tuesday has contributed to that difference in energy? Because obviously Trump, when he planned this announcement, would have been anticipating that he would be making it off the back of a triumphant route for the Republican Party in the midterm elections, the endorsement of all his favourite candidates by enthused American voters, and none of that really happened. Yes, no, I think it made a, a huge difference, Andrew. For for one thing, most major Republican officials uh, were not present in Mar-a-Lago for his announcement. I think that is significant considering that, you know, you might think he is the standard bearer of the party. He is the former president. Um, and in addition to that, yeah, certainly e even polls have shifted. Some of the one sort of poll that was taken just after the midterms by YouGov actually so showed the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, ahead of Donald Trump in polling for 2024 in terms of which candidate Republicans would like to see um, represent them. So, and, and that is, of course, uh, the result of Ron DeSantis doing extremely well, winning in Florida by almost by 20 points. 
um, his re-election, while many other candidates, including those that were chosen by Donald Trump, did did poorly and and um, you know arguably cost uh, Donald Trump the um, cost Republicans the election. Um, so yes, in that sense, it was very significant. I would say as well, though, now a week a week after the elections or the midterms, or a little bit at, more than a week after, you are seeing a mix. There is also blame being shifted to other people. Donald Trump has tried to blame Republican leaders in Congress, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and that is something you are hearing from others as well. So it's not some sort of straight down the line uh, a blame of Donald Trump for what happened. In the midterms, he still has plenty of supporters out there. He does, I think it's fair to say, go into this race as the front runner, uh, despite everything. But as I say, still a, a different energy than last time around. Uh, Chris, just finally, a few flint-hearted skeptics have suggested that Trump running again is not motivated by some dedication to public service, but by a desire to keep out of the dock. If he is running for president, does it make, it shouldn't, but does it make any decisions the Department of Justice may be making about indicting him more difficult? Well, it, it makes it more difficult politically, of course, Andrew. And so that that is something that would be the focus. Uh, wh- whether that actually ends up being a consideration of the Justice Department, uh, I mean, as you as you said there, it it certainly shouldn't. Uh, that you know, it should be focused on the evidence, whether there is any charging of Donald Trump or not. But but yes, certainly there was a feeling even when the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago um, earlier in the summer. Um, that this was something that that sort of goaded Trump to run again. That he was perhaps even before that not as uh, not as willing to run in 2024 as he was otherwise. He sees this you know spin, this political spin of the FBI um, as as something that that helps him and perhaps might avert charges. He did also reference that in his speech. He once again talked about the FBI and it was something that he got sort of the longest the, the 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 loudest applause for when he talked about the weaponization of the justice system and a need for a top to bottom overhaul clean out the festering rot of the FBI so he was of course incredibly strong on that and yes you could argue it might not impact the justice department's decision to charge him but certainly he is getting ready for any charges and he is setting the terms politically for any charges that might be coming against him Chris Chermack thank you for joining us you're listening to the briefing And you're back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. I'm Andrew Muller. Time now to get the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Um, Ewan, first of all, the new-ish Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, has another grim set of inflation figures to contemplate. Andrew, yes. Uh, we've had endless speculation in the UK about what's going to be happening in the autumn statement due tomorrow. But yes, it is a pretty bad backdrop for the Chancellor. Inflation now at a 41-year high in the year to October, 11.1%. Stop me if you heard this before, but another punchy reading for UK inflation. And again, it is energy prices, which is the key driver. October is the month where domestic prices are fixed. Uh, and gas prices uh, rose more than 35% on the previous month. Electricity prices are also up a great deal. Now, this is really pretty unwelcome news for the government. There is some hope that this could be the peak of inflation. Investors already uh, very hopeful that the US has seen its peak. Lots of money uh, flowing into stocks in the US on optimism uh, that inflation has peaked in the world's biggest economy. And uh, a lot of economists think this 
perhaps could be the worst inflation reading we see uh, in the UK. But not just energy, but also food prices rising very rapidly. So this is really hitting poorer consumers hard in the UK as they spend more of their money uh, on food and energy. Uh, a lot of categories of food really rising in price. Overall food inflation at 2% uh, just for the month of October. That is the Bank of England's entire annual inflation target just in one month. The prices. Uh, of uh, many staples really rising rapidly. Uh, it's a pretty difficult backdrop as the Chancellor works out how to fill the government's fiscal black hole. There has been lots and lots of speculation about which taxes might go up and which spending might be cut. I'm not going to get into that. We're going to get all of that from the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, uh, tomorrow. Well, in more joyous news for a Chancellor preparing to tell British households that they're going to have to pay more tax, there's also a warning on house prices. <laughs> yes, Bloomberg Economics has a forecast that house prices could fall by as much as 20% as the Bank of England pushes up the cost of borrowing. Now, that is a gap between what buyers are currently paying for property in the UK and prices that can be justified by economic fundamentals. I should say before uh, people get too uh, horrified at this uh, prospect that uh, there's often a gap between fundamentals uh, and the reality of the market. But of course, at the moment, there is a bit of a storm, a bit of a perfect storm in the property market in that we're coming off the back of a massive surge in demand uh, after the pandemic. There was the race for space driven by lots and lots of cheap money. That cheap money has come to a very abrupt end with the Bank of England raising rates to 3%. Uh, just looking at my uh, Blingberg terminal now, the predictions uh, by the money market says it will get to 4.5% on the base rate sometime uh, late spring, early summer next year. That is where uh, the markets think that, inflation, that uh, interest rates will peak. Uh, in the UK, but even at 3%, which means mortgages of 5 to 6%, that is really uh, hurting uh, people renewing their mortgages. And that is starting to get to house prices. We saw the right move asking prices come off by 1.1% in the latest month, although November is not a very good month for house sales uh, anyway. But this looks like some early signs that house prices are starting to turn downward in the UK. We seem to be pretty behind the curve on this in uh, New Zealand and Canada and parts of the US. They're already falling uh, very rapidly. So something else uh, for the Chancellor to keep his eye on. Ewan Potts, thank you as always. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And finally, on today's show, the forecast is on all good newsstands from tomorrow. Mediocre newsstands from the day after. Monocle's editor, Josh Fennett, has been busy compiling it. He joins me in the studio to tell us what we will be keeping an eye on in the year ahead, according to this thing, which you have there in front of you, Josh. Um, first of all, though, if you would, we've been doing this a few years now, the forecast. Uh, but for any listeners who may have missed the memo, what actually is it? I mean, what, what lunchtime radio shows have they been listening to, Andrew? Not not our one, for sure. Um, the forecast is that uh, that chance for journalists to attempt to do that most dangerous of things, which is make some predictions about the year ahead and what might be important. And while other less smiling, 
more serious organizations might look at the world of geopolitics and try and second guess what Putin might do next and what world leaders might argue about next. What we like to do is look for some positive opportunities in the world, spin the globe and find some ideas that will definitely be important, whether that's about education, the future of energy, the future of architecture and buildings. So that's the little uh, that's the little stump speech about it. And Andrew, your name's in there a few times, is it not? Uh, it is. Um, and One we... to watch for next year. Yeah. Um, but without depriving <laughs> Depriving uh, listeners of, of reason to buy the forecast and figure out what's actually in it. What, what sort of opportunities, what kind of reasons did we spot for getting out of bed in 2023? Well, there's a great um, long read piece by a writer called David Kaufman, uh, a longtime New Yorker. Um, and the observation of many people who've been to New York recently is that while Manhattan has become busy again, a few mm. people have gone back to the office, um, crime is up. Uh, people riding the subway, the number of people riding the subway is down. Um, cultural institutions are struggling. So we commissioned him to do a, a, a long-ranging and far-reaching piece in the vein of Jane Jacobs' idea about the life and death and renewal of great American cities because so many people have moved to second-tier cities mm. or moved out to the suburbs or decided to go to Rockaway Beach or to be closer to the Hudson Valley or whatever it might be. You know, what does the future look like for these big American cities? We see it in San Francisco as well deep issues with crime, uh, deep divisions between people and uh, a widening gap between the rich and the poor. So we surveyed, without giving too much away, four or five people doing different things in different parts of the city to try and bring a bit of that verve that makes it um, so clever and so special. And a lot of people today hark back to probably quite a different and dangerous time in New York when the crime rates were mm. high. So we also kind of interrogate this idea of cities uh, in this moment of renewal being poor and sexy and them being an interesting place for arts and culture. Uh, the obvious uh, contradiction there being that New York is far too expensive for anyone to <laughs> possibly repeat any of that. I mean, th this has been a, a favourite theme of Monocles. I can remember a long time ago in quite an early edition of the magazine writing a story about the fors and against of just abandoning what appeared to be dead American cities. And it only occurred to me quite recently, one of the people I spoke to that was the then mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, now Senator-elect Fetterman. So, you see, if you read Monocle's The Forecast, you, you might be seeing the people... S several years down the yeah, line. <laughs> who, who, ten years from now, are going to end up running the country. Uh, and uh, we do another interesting thing in the survey. You'll remember, clearly, that in the July-August issue, we talk about quality of life mm -hmm. and the reasons that uh, the 25 most livable cities are forging forward. We do the kind of antithesis to that in The Forecast, which is called The Small cities survey andrew mm. and australia your native country most of our city well apart from the three or four really obvious ones most of our cities are pretty small i know but i very much doubt you're going to guess the city that gets in at number five it's in australia and one of the provisos is that there are fewer than two hundred and fifty thousand residents do you want me to give you a hint? You has, has Wagga Wagga's moment come at last? <laughs> I think ha, has my birthplace finally got the credit it has been lacking all these years? That's a few years down the line. <sighs> you've, been, you've, you've, you've been flogging that, flogging that a, dead horse for it, a while. But it's a nice town. Would you consider, um, you know, many people growing up in Victoria would think to themselves that a move to Melbourne would be the obvious place, mm -hmm. but no, no. Which is a very big city. Where has the Tasmanian Ferry Service, the exclusive, the, I think it's called the Spirit of Tasmania, the exclusive ferry from the mainland, 
across the strait to Tasmania moved to. It's only bloody Geelong. Ah, there we go. What do you think of Geelong? Uh, well, I, I think very highly of the football team, uh, as, as regular listeners may be painfully aware by this point. Current reigning AFL premiers. So you're not going to be moving there? Um, it's a, Geelong's a nice town. You, you could do genuinely a great deal worse, but as, as, most, as a great many weary Geelongites will tell you, however, they're getting a little bit sick of people moving an hour down the highway from Melbourne uh, in search of somewhere cheaper to live and bringing their strange alien footballing colours with them. Unreal. There we go. <laughs> an, 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 an insight. Um, just finally, Josh, and I'm, I'm absolutely not hinting, do you, do you have a particular favourite item in, in this year's forecast? I'll be brief, but I really enjoyed the essay section this year. So we've got an amazing um, Irish writer um, whose work I admire, who has a book out with Daunt Books at the minute called Look Here. I asked her to write about the future of cities, and I was very interested in the idea that the future of cities might look a little bit like the past of cities, mm. people crossing each other's path occasionally and exchanging pleasantries. Um, but that, that narrative about what cities are going to look like in the future is being a little bit challenged, should we say, by notions of... Um, the line in Saudi Arabia and this idea that people would never want to interact with each other and they want to live in these weird air-conditioned bubbles and, you know, dug, trenches dug in the desert. Um, and so I wanted her to bring a little bit of common sense to that discussion and talk about, well, the reason that people gather and mass in cities, which is becoming a bit of a theme of this chat, but there are obviously other things in the forecast, um, is that people want to talk to each other and people want to exchange ideas. Uh, there's another great essay. I know that you wrote one, but I'm coming to, I'm coming to that in a minute. Uh, by a New York Times best-selling author called Daniel Pink. And I got him to write about the idea of regret and why it's not always a bad thing. Regret is uh, seen as a negative emotion, but actually it can be something where we reflect and we think mm. again about how to live better. So he talks about the psychology of regret and how if we accept where things went wrong, as many things did in 2023, uh, in 2022 even, we can have a better 2023. And um, I sent you a bit of an assignment, you didn't did. I, Andrew? You I did. said, um, I said, send us a postcard from the near and not so nasty future. I said, send us a postcard from 2043 and tell us what happened. I mean, it was, a, it was I'm not going to lie, a fun story to write because it gets you massively off the hook of Monocle's diligent fact-checkers. There's, <laughs> there's no facts in it. I just made the whole thing up. Well, long-time contributor um, and a fantastic writer, Robert Bound, once gave me a great bit of advice. He said, the fewer facts you can put in it, the quicker it will go through. And I, I stick to that. Well, I, 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 it calls to mind the, the motto of a former colleague at Melody Maker many years ago who would always harumph research is for train spotters. Um, but no, it, it, it it was, a, it was a fun piece to write because, weirdly, the more I got into it and actually the more bizarre the whole thing got, the more I started thinking, yeah, all, all of this could happen. Well, None of this is completely implausible. You, you, look, at, you look at the kind of the, the triumvirate of world powers at the minute and you kind of follow a, uh, a faintly logical course about how things could, could mm. develop. And actually, as a thought exercise, I think it's absolutely brilliant because I think the, the, the danger that leaders have, and I don't know how many G20 leaders are thumbing through the forecast um, at the minute, they probably can't, it's out tomorrow. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the opportunity for people in positions of power, influential, interesting people, CEOs, heads of think tanks, the kind of people that do read the forecast, to just 
step away from the immediate reaction and look at, you know, what could be going on in the world and conceive of another better, worse, more interesting future. I thought you did an amazing job of um, of unpacking that. And funny, uh, funny about all of the United uh, States seceding. <laughs> I the, the more I got into it, the more plausible and indeed a better idea I thought it was. Uh, Josh Fennett, Monocle's editor, thank you for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The briefing returns tomorrow at the same time and I'll be back with tonight's Monocle Daily at 1800 UK. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.